Welcome to Boston Venue, the channel podcast. This is the true and complete story of the legendary Boston music club, The Channel. From its shaky launch in one of Boston's grittiest neighborhoods, through the glory years of beer-soaked rock, punk, and reggae shows, from an incredible roster of artists, and its demise at the hands of local mobsters after a spectacular run. A demise that ultimately led to a murder that would take 25 years to solve. This podcast includes explicit language and violent episodes. No sugarcoating and no bullshit. Let's rock. On the morning of January 12, 2018, Harry Boris was getting ready for his daily walk on the beach in the South Shore, Massachusetts town he lives in. Harry's a fit guy in his late 60s, the kind of guy who's done a lot of different kinds of business with a lot of different kinds of people. New England had just experienced what the weather channels were calling a bomb cyclone which had plunged temperatures to record lows for the last few weeks. This balmy morning was a break from the icy temps, and Harry was going to take advantage of it. As he was putting his sneakers on, there was a knock at the door. I open the door, and there's these two guys staring back at me, black suits. One guy flashes a badge and says, uh, I'm from the FBI, and I want to ask you some questions. Don't worry, you're not in trouble or anything. We just need to ask you some questions about Steve DeSaro. See, Harry used to manage a legendary Boston club called The Channel. After a good run in the 80s, things got, well, weird near the end. In the early 90s, we were having uh, some financial difficulties, you know, increases in rent and insurance, and uh, we found ourselves in a position where we wanted to sell the channel, get out of the business. So Steve DeSaro emerged as a potential buyer, and he put a group together with a couple of other people that we knew. They decided that they were going to buy the club. They offered us a deal. We accepted it. We thought we had a legitimate transaction. It turned out that Tessaro was a front man for a known Boston mobster, Cadillac Frank Salemi. He turned out to be the money behind Desaro and his group, and uh, through a series of circumstances, they managed to acquire the assets of the channel at a bankruptcy auction, and uh, they took over the club. At its height, the channel would act as a center to Boston's musical universe. Here's Boston-based, Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter and guitarist, John Butcher. When you'd enter the Channel Club through the front door and then went through the lobby, you'd pass, through, uh, pass the green rooms, the dressing rooms, to your left. There we were, and we're hanging out, when who should come into the green room but Steven Tyler himself? I wanted to talk to him. I thought about talking to him. He was cool, but clearly he came to see what all the fuss was about. We went on, the three of us levitating on the energy and the, and the vibe in the room, having the time of our lives. I look over to stage right, and there's Tyler. I saw him yell into our buddy's ear. I saw him mouth the words, that's rock and roll. That endorsement from arguably one of the coolest rock stars there ever was, Steven Tyler, happened at the Channel Club in Boston. It made my night, and that's how I remember the channel. I knew that we needed to get as many diverse crowds as possible. So we decided to try to book everything as far as pop, you know, we didn't book chamber uh, music or stuff like that, but we decided that when it came to popular music, anything loosely defined as rock and roll, we would do it. We didn't want to be known as a punk club or a hard rock club or a blues club or a reggae club. We figured, you know, that if we did all of those and we featured a lot of local music, a lot of very talented local musicians didn't really have a lot of choices to play. They play in little tiny bars with bad sound systems and bad acoustics. And so we figured, you know, give these guys the same opportunity to play in front of a big crowd as the big bands get. 
thousands of shows with thousands of acts. Before it was all said and done, at least one man would be murdered, and more than 25 years later, there would be suspicious car fires, threats, lives would be changed, and subpoenas would be served. This is the story of The Channel. So there they are, Harry, the FBI agent, and a Massachusetts State Police detective. They informed Harry that they were investigating the circumstances surrounding the death of one Stephen DeSaro, the guy who managed the channel during those weird final days after the mob took over. DeSaro had disappeared in 1993, but the body was recovered in 2016 in Providence, Rhode Island. The accused murderer, Cadillac Frank Salemi, was being held on suspicion of DeSaro's murder. Well, I invited them in, and they came in, and they started talking to me about the channel and about DeSaro and when I first met him. And of course, uh, they informed me pretty quickly that they were uh, investigating the murder of DeSaro, whose remains were found recently in a, I think, in a warehouse in Providence, Rhode Island. They also got contact info for Harry's brother, Peter. Peter was a partner at the channel back when Harry ran things. The two brothers were about to get pulled back into a world they thought they had left long ago. So they called a few times after their initial visit. They asked me to drive out to a state office building. At that meeting, uh, Fred Wyshek, who was the lead prosecutor, assistant U.S. attorney, and another prosecutor, as well as the FBI agent and state police detective that I had spoken to at my house were there. And they said that they were prepping me for my possible testimony at the upcoming trial. So I was there for about an hour and a half and they grilled me again, asked me very similar questions and they kind of prompted me to respond in, in certain ways. They would be speaking to Peter as well and uh, they asked me to get a hold of him for them and see if he'd be willing to talk to them, which I did. The FBI agent called me and he said to me that he wanted to talk to me about the discovery of DeSaro's remains and what I knew about you know, the incident and what happened at the club. I was a little bit on edge. But then something weird happened. The day after the interview, two cars in front of a pizzeria Peter owned went up in flames. Local newspaper, the Patriot Ledger, ran the headline, Hellfire Probed as Mob Boss Heads to Trial. Uh, the brothers are pretty shook up. After all, Cadillac Frank served time in jail for blowing a Boston attorney's legs off with a car bomb. So yeah, this was unsettling. So Sunday morning, when the manager went to open up the uh, pizza place, he called me and he said, two cars caught on fire over here overnight. He actually took pictures of the cars and he sent me the pictures. Nine o'clock that morning, I look out my window and I see three police cars in front of my house. I went out there and I said, can I help you guys? And they said, well, you know, the uh, chief asked us to come and do a wellness check on you. So I said, okay, what's the wellness check for? Well, just to see if you're okay, because, you know, there was a couple of cars got burnt in front of your pizza place. We're going to be driving by your house on a regular basis, and there will be a car parked across the street in front of your house from time to time. How did the brothers get to this point? From running a successful music club in the 80s to fearing for their lives decades after it closed. To figure out how they got here, let's go back to the beginning. Let's head back to 1980. In 1980 Boston, 
WBCN ruled the airwaves as the legendary rock of Boston. Aerosmith, The Cars, Boston, and the Jay Giles Band had already exploded nationally. Hell, even disco queen Donna Summer was born in Dorchester. Music was the pulse of the city's gritty, working-class neighborhoods. Forced school busing in segregated neighborhoods created tension in the long, brutal winters that spilled into sizzling summers. Kevin White was starting his fourth and final term as mayor after presiding over a decade of racial tensions that exploded in the city's neighborhoods, especially in Southie, where Whitey Bulger lorded over everything illegal in town. Mayor White had helped revitalize the city's waterfront and downtown areas, and his methods led to years-long federal investigations into city hall corruption. More than 20 city hall employees and almost an equal number of local businessmen would be convicted in the end. But in 1980, this was just how you got shit done in Boston. The Rat in Kenmore Square dominated the punk scene in all its sweaty DIY glory. The Paradise featured all the upcoming rock and rollers, including Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and a little Irish band called U2. Disco clubs in Kenmore Square catered to the young boogie crowd, but the drinking age had been raised to 21. The scene was fractured and an opportunity for a bold entrepreneur was evident through the boozy haze. Good timing, because Harry Boris was restless. I was working at Burlington Northern Air Freight, a pretty large air freight company located at Boston's Logan Airport. I'd just been promoted to inbound supervisor, and it was a pretty good job, but I was unfulfilled. It was boring, nine to five every day. I've been an entrepreneur at heart all my life, and I really wanted to do something for myself. I wanted a business of some sort. I had some experience in the restaurant business, and I always had my ears to the ground looking for some kind of an opportunity. And I was listening to WBCN, specifically Willie Loco Alexander, a local act that I had never seen live in Boston. And I wondered why. I used to look at the Boston Globe business opportunity section uh, back in the 80s. And I found what I thought was an interesting opportunity. There was a guy that had a nightclub uh, somewhere in Boston and was looking for a manager with a chance to participate in the ownership of the club. So, of course, I thought that was pretty interesting. I gave him a call. That's when I met Joe Cicerone, the man that owned the assets to the nightclub that became the channel. Joe Cicerone was running a club called The Showboat. The place was located in the Fort Point Channel section of Boston. At that time, famous for the Boston Tea Party and not much else. Fort Point is a sort of conduit neighborhood that connects downtown Boston, South Boston, and the seaport. But many of the buildings were still uninhabited. The Fort Point was an industrial uh, area that had a lot of activity during the day. Parking lots were always full. Gillette was right there, and a lot of people used to work there, hundreds of people. After dark, uh, it was pretty desolate. Everything would empty out. The parking lots would empty out. There was no traffic there to speak of. Lighting was poor. The streets were rutted. A lot of uh, previous century cobblestones uh, poking through the asphalt. It was tough going there, even driving, you had to drive real slowly, and walking, there wasn't a lot of light, so you had to uh, be careful. It was a sketchy area after dark, not someplace where you'd want to be caught alone. On the positive side, though, there was plenty of free parking, and it was just a short walk from South Station. In the 60s, the building that would eventually become the channel had served as a theme restaurant called The Warehouse, which offered novel seating options. Guests could enjoy their meal in a jail cell, a carousel, a boxcar, or the back seat of a Rolls Royce. It eventually went out of business. The cause? 
death by location. Then came the Mad Hatter in the 70s. Disco was all the rage and sweaty young people filled the space for cheap thrills and cheap booze. Back then the drinking age was 18, so clubs like this were all over. Pack them in, get them drunk, let them dance, send them home. Then, in 1979, the drinking age started to go up from 18 to 19, then 20, before hitting 21 in 1980. Without teenagers to buy their cheap booze, places like the Mad Hatter didn't stand a chance. The music stopped. Death by location. So the warehouse became the Mad Hatter, which was, in 1980, now the showboat. Still with me? When he took over, Joe Cicerone retained the gaudy bottom-lit dance floor and, of course, the ubiquitous mirror ball. He added a stage, but still, no one was coming. I met Joe. We met inside the showboat, and we talked about what he was doing and why it wasn't working. I felt that there was three primary reasons why the concept that he had put forth uh, at the showboat, the old Mad Hatter, wasn't working. Number one was the building. The building wasn't conducive to a cocktail lounge with a high-end audience. The second uh, problem was the location. As I said uh, before, it was dark, it was dismal, it was desolate, and it was kind of sketchy. It would be hard to get people to go there on date nights. And, of course, the third problem was uh, the programming. An oldies band attracted an older audience, usually on weekends. It wasn't a big drinking audience, and they would come once, and that was about it. All in all, it was a losing concept, but I saw the potential because the place had a huge capacity, 1,600. It had an entertainment license, and it was a on-premise license that, where you didn't have to serve food, so you could do general admission, you didn't need seats, and I figured it would be great as a concert slash dance club. So I saw the opportunity, and I got a couple of friends together, a guy I was working with uh, who was in the trucking business, and an old friend that worked for me in the restaurant business. Between the three of us, we raised $40,000. And we made a deal with Joe to buy half the assets of the Red E Corporation, which was the name of the company. We went in as uh, partners, 50% for us and 50% for him. I was the head of the group that bought in with Joe. We bandied about a lot of names as far as uh, what we would call the club. There was a discussion that maybe we should just keep it uh, the showboat and just kind of play on the publicity that they had. I thought that was a mistake because they didn't have much uh, positive publicity. So I came up with the name Channel One because I figured it would play up on the location being right next to the Fort Point Channel. And I just thought that Channel One might represent that it's a conduit for entertainment. So Harry and the group were in. Now they just needed one thing, customers. Harry had a plan. It involved two key principles. One was booking diverse acts. The other was to make your ears bleed. If you visit Fort Point today, you'll see a vibrant and bustling part of Boston Seaport District. Restaurants, museums, tech companies, a 500,000 square foot convention center. In short, billions of dollars of development money over the last 30 years. But in the 70s and 80s, it was pretty dead. Almost nobody wanted to hang out there. Fort Point was miles away from popular spots in Boston and Cambridge. Because of the remote location, every single customer had to be convinced to come there. 
no foot traffic, and no drive-bys. So the challenge was getting people to come to the Fort Point area to come to concerts at the channel. We had almost no budget for paid advertising, radio, newspaper, television. So we had to get the word out in other ways. After some debate, the owners developed two key principles. The first was to have an open booking policy. While primarily known and promoted as a live rock club, all established and emerging popular genres were welcome. During that time, Boston did one thing as good as almost any city in the world. Music. Boston has always been known for its world-class music scene. In 1980, disco was dominating the pop charts, and kids could go to dozens of clubs like Jason's, Boston Boston, and Narcissus to get their rocks off to Shalimar or Diana Ross. Black clubs like Wally's, The Sugar Shack, and The Western Front featured jazz, blues, and reggae acts, while country and western had a New England home at the Hillbilly Ranch. As for rock, you had The Rat, Bunratties, The Paradise, just to name a few. But even in a crowded musical landscape, the team noticed that there was very little genre crossover. So in 1980, I looked at the club scene, and to me it seemed it was a good reflection of the scene in Boston generally. The 70s had seen a period in Boston where there was a lot of racial intolerance. Boston went through a period when schools were forcibly uh, desegregated. And I thought in the early 80s that the club scene was similar. There was very little genre crossing. If you wanted to see black music, you go to a black club where they played reggae and blues and a little bit of rap at the beginning. If you wanted to dance to ABBA or uh, Nona Hendrix, you'd go to a disco. And rock and roll clubs were a little compartmentalized, too. The Rat featured punk music, very much alternative music. Bun Reddy's was a, a little more uh, open booking, but it was small and it was in Brighton. And you had the Paradise, which was a concert club, and they did some pretty good acts. It wasn't a great place to see a concert. After some debate, the owners developed two key principles. The first was to have an open booking policy. While primarily known and promoted as a live rock club, all established and emerging popular genres were welcome. From the beginning, the guiding principle at the channel was diversity. We were known as a rock and roll, and eventually we became known as Boston's best live rock. We welcomed all types of popular music loosely defined as rock and roll. Everything from reggae to rap to world music to straight-ahead rock and roll, punk, New Wave, Garage, Grunge, you name it, we booked it. The second thing? Arena-grade sound. Peter Vinalia and Dave Tedeschi, who ran a local sound and lighting company, were brought in to do sound. Peter remembers that time well. So on either side of the stage, we had four JBL-style bass bins, double 15s, 15-inch speaker in each bin, 16 speakers on each side. Above those, we had two 12-inch mid-range cabinets, a couple JBL horns, and a couple Altec horns, and then built out a bigger monitor system. We could handle most all of the shows. Occasionally, if a really big-name band came in, they'd want a lot more equipment. Even though they really didn't need it, they'd want it. To appease them, would have to do it in order to get them to come play their room. Terry Hanley, that I bought some horns and things from. Terry had a brother, Bill, and he did the sound for Woodstock. And he did the Beatles Shea Stadium back in the 60s. He was like the granddad of uh, rock and roll audio. Years later, I got a whole bunch of JBL 15-inch baskets from him. So at any given time at the channel, you might have been playing through the same speaker that was used at Woodstock or that was used by the Beatles. 
We had one of the better sound systems in Boston. I think most people will agree with that. Uh, I think we certainly had about the biggest, loudest system. And we were one of the biggest rooms too. You know, you, you can't compare the channel sound system with the rat sound system. The biggest comparison that really pissed me off was one year Boston Magazine voted the channel sound system the worst sound in Boston. But they rated the best sound system in Boston Symphony Hall. And I was like, oh, come on. How can you even make this comparison? This is stupid. Nonetheless, I'm still flattered to have been the worst sound in Boston. Most of the local bands liked playing the channel, I think. It was a big room. It was a sound system that they didn't get to use often. The younger bands, the newer bands were thrilled to be there because they, some, some of them, they never had an experience like that before. The channel was the big club. So, you know, when you came to the channel, you knew it was a big night for the local bands. The club also provided lights and a house sound guy. Now, with the sound in place and the policy set to revolutionize the Boston music scene, there was only one thing left to do. Book some shows and get the word out. Before we go any further, let's take a moment and talk about the team. By this point, you know Harry. He was the main guy running things. Then there was Peter, Harry's brother. Peter was the club's manager. He had a lot of restaurant and club management experience and almost no capacity for dealing with bullshit. With the possibility of up to 1,600 drunken patrons nightly, Peter's no-nonsense approach was needed. I knew we needed a good operations manager, so I convinced my brother Peter to take on the job of night manager at the channel. And he had a no-nonsense approach to management. I knew that that's exactly what we needed at the channel at the time. We had a club to open. We didn't know if we were going to bring in 50 people, 500, 1,000, or 15. So everything had to be in place. For courtesy, I had to have drink tickets in my hand to be able to hand them out to the VIPs. The stage manager had to have the backstage passes. We had to make sure that all of the backstage area was clear. All of the equipment was in place out of the fire lanes. The security had to be in place. We had to make sure that the dressing rooms were properly handled. The cash that was coming in from the cashier's booth had to be taken out, had to be counted, had to be stacked, had to be banded. And the rest of the team came together. The calendar began to fill up. The strategy was working, and the channel was set to have a string of debut shows for the record books. So there we were, getting ready to open the largest nightclub in Boston. All the other members of the group had day jobs. It was pretty much up to me. So the first team came together pretty organically. On the entertainment side, Peter Vanalia and Dave Tedeschi, who had done the sound on the first weekend, stayed on. They installed a permanent sound system and took care of all the production side of the operation. Keeping the building together literally was Costas Menounos, all-around handyman and maintenance person. Costas, along with his wife, Litsa, did a great job keeping the place together under uh, what turned out to be a lot of challenges. Dealing with a roof leak during a sold-out Spinal Tap show to making emergency repairs in bathrooms, bars. Costa could always be depended on to come through in any situation. And to top off the team, there was Phyllis. Phyllis was able to keep order in the 
office, dealing with advanced ticket counts, answering calls, greeting visitors, dealing with uh, bands and their riders, working in the box office when we needed her, and generally keeping the operation from descending into total chaos. All in all, the team managed to do what needed to be done given some challenging circumstances. Over the years, a lot of new members joined and a lot of people left. Costas Menounos, Peter Boris, and I remained uh, on the team until the very end. The entire space was transforming as well. So the stage was on one end of the building. The building was uh, almost 200 feet long. The throw of the sound was better, but we saw that, uh, especially on a sold-out show, everybody would crowd up near the stage. A lot of people in the back of the room couldn't really see. I had an idea that we could cut an area in front of the stage, which was about as big as the stage, maybe even a little bit bigger, lower it by about eight inches, which was the local step size. The thought was that that would improve the sight lines and for the people that came early and crowded along the stage to get a better view and uh, destroy their ears, it was okay because the people towards the back of the room were able to see the band a little bit better. That became known as The Pit. And it's a good thing the team had gotten the place ready. They were about to have some very unexpected visitors. On the next episode of Boston Venue, the channel podcast, opening night, May 30th, 1980. Money, like blood in the water, attracts the sharks. Boston Venue, the channel, was conceived and created by Harry Boris. Executive producer, David Ginsberg. Written by Chris O'Keefe. Engineered by Tori Lamb. Produced by Chachi LaPrette. Edited and mixed by Tony Baglio. Music featured in this episode, Life Takes a Life, was provided by John Butcher Axis. Contributing storytellers for this episode were Peter Boris, Peter Venaglia, and John Butcher. Graphic design by Lisa St. John Bennett. I'm your narrator, John Laurenti. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends to check us out on thechannelstory.com or on Facebook, Boston Venue, The Channel Story. Leave your comments and share your stories.